Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, what exactly did the latest big report on New Zealand's fresh water actually tell us? It looks like the health of New Zealand's waterways will be a core issue in this year's elections, with report after report painting a dire outlook for the country's lakes and rivers. Now the most definitive piece of work from the Ministry for the Environment and Statistics New Zealand on the state of the country's freshwater has confirmed the serious challenges facing New Zealand's freshwater. The report will be a benchmark for testing the quality of fresh water in the years ahead to show whether the country is on the right path. For many, the Ministry for the Environment report made grim but unsurprising reading. Of the native freshwater species that are reported on, around three quarters of fish, one third of invertebrates, and one-third of plants are threatened with or at risk of extinction. Jerry Kloss heads the University of Otago's zoology department. His main research interest is freshwater fish. He says we're starting to see a widespread degradation of lowland habitats of native freshwater creatures and plants not seen before. One thing leads to another as the system starts to decline, you start to get less ability to process the pollution that's actually coming into the system. You just generally see a loss of of life around the whole system. You, You see less fish in the water, you see less birds in the water. But what's happened to cause this? Nutrients or animal waste and fertiliser that runs off farm paddocks is a burgeoning problem. And while urban streams are heavily polluted the trend is getting much worse in agricultural areas. I'm Kate Gudsell, and this insight delves deeper into the report's findings and talks to experts, advocates in the community about just how healthy are our waterways. The Tutanui stream is a small tributary stream to the Rangitiki River. Greg Carlion is the director of Palmerston North-based environmental consultancy Catalyst Group. Ordinarily, that would be a stream full of biodiversity. It would be rich with aquatic life because that's where all your little things go. to. They migrate up those small streams, they're safe and secure, and so it'll be a great breeding habitat. The Tutainui stream is south of Martin. Greg Carlion believes the stream is one of the most polluted in the country. And data from the Land, Air, Water Aotearoa website, which takes information from local and central government, puts it in the worst categories for E. coli, nitrogen and phosphorus. And it's a combination of all these nutrients which affects the stream that feeds into the Rangitike, one of 15 rivers with a water conservation order on it. This means the river is like a national park and needs to be preserved because it has outstanding natural or cultural significance. The Tutanui starts at the northern end of the flats of the Rangitike community, just north of Martin Township and it's captured by, firstly, the water supply dams for Martin, and by the time the fresh spring that feeds that dam uh, has filled the dams, there's nothing left at all for the stream, so the stream stays dry for four or five months of the year. Once it gets about a kilometre down from that, it hits the water treatment plant, where the council will sometimes backwash the water treatment plant back into that stream. About a third of the stream margin has got no fencing, so it's got unfettered stock access into it. 
it hits Martin Township where it's dry all the way through the Martin Township right through the summer period and then just below Martin it's gathered up about a litre a second of water so you know a milk bottle and a half of water a second running down that stream and there's an outfall from the sewage treatment plant that puts 20 litres a second of sewage in. That description of the Tutainui stream perfectly encapsulates what is degrading the country's waterways. Human activity, whether it's dams, farming, human sewage or industrial plants. The report is clear. The choices people make on the land determines what ends up in our water. The downstream effect of this is what it does to freshwater biodiversity. The Secretary for the Environment's role is to speak on behalf of the environment. Vicky Robertson performs that role in a location far removed from the rivers and lakes her ministry oversees, next to the Beehive in Wellington. The report lays out in stark detail the trend of the biodiversity decline, which for her was one of its biggest findings. I grew up whitebaiting and to think that some of that, you know, that we did as we were kids is at risk or threatened for extinction. I think that's the bit that really spoke to me as a person who's grown up in New Zealand. As a Secretary for the Environment, I think there's been a lot of conversations around swimmability and and human health in our waterways. It just said to me that, you know, look, there's a a broader story here that we should be focusing on as New Zealanders. 72% of native fish... 34% of invertebrates and 31% of freshwater plants are at risk or threat of extinction. Jerry Kloss heads the University of Otago's zoology department. His main research interest is freshwater fish, but he also does work on invertebrates. When it comes to fish, we know that most New Zealand species are declining. When it comes to the invertebrates, the pattern's harder to determine simply because we don't know as much about the invertebrates. When it comes to the plants, most of the threatened species tend to be in lowland rivers and, and lakes. It's a significant decline, particularly in the fish. What is changing too is that some of the what were previously considered widespread common species are also starting to show evidence of decline, which is worrying. It suggests sort of a widespread impact on lowland rivers and lakes. Professor Kloss says a new pattern of decline is starting to emerge. Which is in species like the Canterbury galaxis, the longjaw galaxis, the Canterbury mudfish, even brown and rainbow trout, which are starting to decline in distribution and abundance across the lowland areas. Another species which surprised me, actually, but of which there is actually good data and it's reported in the State of the Environment report, is the common bully. Common bully are called common because they're typically common. But to see them starting to decline is, I think, is concerning because it starts to suggest a sort of a widespread systemic impact of degradation across our lowland habitats, which we haven't really seen before. Do you know what's behind that degradation? It's probably a combination of factors. As you intensify land use, be it urban or be it agricultural, unless it's managed very carefully, you tend to get an increase in nutrients, you tend to get an increase in fine sediments. Those two variables interact together. The nutrients fuel the growth of filamentous algae and algal biofilms, which in turn traps the sediments, and those sediments start to clog up the substrates, the fine gravelly substrates, and you end up with basically very slimy, sludgy beds to all your rivers and streams and lakes. I think it's important to note that most of the New Zealand freshwater fish species require clean, hard surfaces on which to spawn, so either clean woody debris or they can spawn very commonly under rocks and amongst gravels. And of course, if all those gravels are clogged up with slimy sediments, then they basically have nowhere to spawn. 
Jerry Kloss says losing biodiversity makes it more difficult for streams to process pollution. He says many of the country's native birds are reliant on invertebrates for food, and there's a loss of life around the whole system, as well as a loss of recreational values such as swimming and fishing. Many of New Zealand's native species are not found anywhere else in the world. Annabeth Cohen is forest and birds freshwater advocate. She says this means the country is vulnerable to losing freshwater plants and creatures. A large amount of the species are endemic, only found here in New Zealand. Once one of those species is gone, it's gone for good. Beyond that, the environment has an interconnected web where, when you take out one species, another species is at risk of declining. She says its members are worried that habitats aren't being protected. You can't have a thriving biodiversity without the habitat and the habitat in a good quality. So you know, intensification of agriculture, encroaching on freshwater habitats is an issue. The quality of freshwater habitats itself is an issue. I think the members of Forest and Bird are really concerned because they can remember in their lifetime waterways that were in a much better state in terms of the quantity, but also the quality. Wetlands are often described as the kidneys of the land. They act like sponges to absorb floodwaters and filter nutrients and sediment from water. They're also important habitats. Before humans, swampy wetlands covered about two and a half million hectares of the country, but by 2008, that had been reduced to about 250,000 hectares. That's a 90% loss that's come through drainage for residential and farmland conversion. Professor Kloss says it's depressing to see that the loss of wetlands has continued over the past two decades. Collectively, at a society level, to de- continue to degrade wetlands is just stupid. At an individual level, with a farmer trying to manage a wetland, that farmer may well have a problem, particularly if a large part of this farm is made up of wetland. But we should be, as a society, trying to think about how we can actually compensate and avoid the loss of those wetlands. Why has there been such a such a massive loss of wetlands? Is it because a lot of them just lie on private property? A lot of them lie on private property. A lot of them are in lowland areas, which often are the most productive for. Ag- Agriculture. I mean, if you can drain that land and turn it into productive farm, you can potentially get a lot of money out of it. That said, a lot of the the wetland drainages that have occurred, really, when I look at it, the past twenty years, have really not achieved a great deal in terms of the national productivity. But why is this precious taonga at risk? Professor Kloss says the catchments which show the highest loss of freshwater life is where the intensification of land use has been the most severe. He says Waikato, Canterbury, and Southland are the standout areas, which have all shown sharp increases in dairy cattle numbers in the last 20 years. Farmland covers about half of New Zealand, and in recent decades, this country has had one of the world's highest rates of agricultural land intensification. Between 1994 and 2015, sheep numbers fell 41 percent, and dairy cattle increased 69 percent. To six and a half million, increasing use of fertilizer, urine and feces from livestock, irrigation, cultivated soils, and accelerated erosion from animals are the types of pressure on freshwater from agriculture. The Secretary for the Environment, Vicky Robertson, says there's not the evidence to conclusively link water quality degradation with dairying, but forest and birds Annabeth Cohen disagrees. 
We've seen in places like Canterbury and Southland that the dairying has increased nearly 500%. Land use has changed over the past five, six, seven centuries with forestry and wetlands being wiped out. But nothing has happened this intensively in a short period of time. We're seeing our species decline at a very quick rate. Jared Watson is a dairy farmer in the flood-prone wild Tahe Valley in the Bay of Plenty. He says there are problems with water quality in the catchment. We're seeing some spikes in E. coli levels in the estuary at the end where the river flows into the, where it meets the ocean. As dairy farmers, we seem to be the biggest target for that at the moment. I know all the other farmers and all my other neighbours and I know everyone's doing the best we can do. So, yeah, we do have issues, but we've fenced off the waterways. We don't allow stock into the waterways anymore. We used to cross the cows, uh, cross the river with the cows, but we've stopped doing that. We haven't done that for 12 months. Mr Watson believes water quality is everyone's responsibility and collectively, humans are all having a big impact. But he acknowledges the dairy sector has played a part. I don't know if the sector's doing enough. I think we've found ourselves in a situation where we're going to do a whole lot more a lot quicker. This has been coming for a while. I think we can we could probably do with a, uh, a bit more guidance from who we supply and Dairy NZ in particular. They're very good. I'm not knocking them. We, you know, they all do a very good job. But I think now we possibly could have hit limits on you know, where we've taken the environment to, or our, our impact on the environment with stocking rates and that, so we can certainly do a better job. One of the most stark findings from the report was the changes in nutrient levels. Nitrogen and phosphorus from animal waste, urine and fertilisers are the nutrients of most concern in New Zealand's freshwater because high concentrations can cause excessive plant growth and algal blooms. Ian Hawes is a water quality scientist who works at the Waterways Centre for Freshwater Management at the University of Canterbury and also at the University of Waikato. He says there's been a dramatic increase in the use of fertiliser in parts of New Zealand. There's no doubt that that's had an impact on the nitrate concentrations and has allowed us to intensify stocking in lowland areas which has had an impact on sediment runoff, had impacts on E. coli runoff as well from these areas. Part of the degradation of water quality today is a result of legacy contaminants from past land uses, such as sheep and beef farming before conversions to dairy. And the impact of activities carried out today will be seen in the country's waters for decades. It's known as the load to come. And Professor Hawes says this problem is well recognised in New Zealand. Even if we stopped everything right now, we've, we're in the kind of turning a super tanker type analogy where it's going to actually take a long time for things to to really improve even if we act immediately. Professor Hawes says the real problem is that it will take decades for the nitrogen from the past and the present to come through the system and there are no easy solutions to this. It's really difficult to remove nitrate from groundwater. It's one of those things that doesn't really happen. And so we can only really begin to interact with the nitrogen when it comes to the surface. So there are some techniques we can use, but they're very expensive and they're very disruptive as well. Some of the techniques that you have to use to remove nitrate can create other problems. So I think there's unfortunately an extent to which we have to live with with this load to come. We can start taking action to make the load to come 
the end of the major problem. We can, if we begin to improve the, our management of nitrogen on agricultural land, then I think we can start to create conditions when in decades to come, people won't have quite such a big problem to deal with. Maybe we just have to try and not make it worse. Water is used for irrigation, hydrating stock, power generation, drinking water and industry. More than half of the water allocated by councils by volume is for irrigation, although there are data gaps on this. These uses can impact flows and volume, and altered flows can cause the build-up of sediment and algae, which can degrade habitats and leave them unfit for swimming, boating and fishing. The report says the country's reliance on irrigation to support our economy, particularly in drier regions, has the greatest potential of all uses to cause altered flows downstream. Irrigation New Zealand's chief executive, Andrew Curtis, says the activity has had an impact on water quality, but users are doing the hard work to improve things. We've had some challenges in the past. It's largely due to the focus hasn't really been on water quality until the last five to ten years, and people have just been working within the the bounds of of what they know. But there's been quite a mass change, what we've seen, certainly since I've been in this role now, which is almost eight years, seen a mass change in the thought process. And it, it comes down to if people understand what the issues actually are and their part in that issue, then people quite quickly change. We've got to realise that the irrigators, the farmers, that they actually live and work in this environment and and their kids swim in the rivers too. And when they start to understand that it's actually some of the actions that they're doing, there's a lot of people making quite rapid change. And and we're seeing some real rapid change at the moment. And that's probably where our frustrations lie, is there's lots of really good things now happening out there. And a number of these new irrigation developments, that they are very much focused on solving legacy issues. One of the solutions that Andrew Curtis is talking about is what's referred to as augmenting flows, or taking water from one source and flushing it down another. The idea is that it will flush out the algae and sediment from the water to improve the resource during times of need. Professor Horse says the idea of augmented flows is not a new concept, but to use it to restore ecosystem values is certainly got potential to to help to manage those critical situations by allowing flood flows to be let go down down systems it's kind of sad that we're kind of at a stage where we're we're managing these things by artificially diverting water but but we are at that stage and so i guess ultimately it'll depend on the extent to which water can be made available for those ecological flows and ecological flushes or water has to be kept back for irrigation In our cities and towns, as every raindrop meets a roof, it gathers up contaminants on its impervious surfaces. As rainwater runs down a house, it might leach into a lawn or flow over concrete paving or out into the asphalt road. As it makes its way across these hard urban surfaces, rain collects harmful substances such as zinc and copper along the way. Urban land covers about 1% of New Zealand, but 87% of people live in urban areas. New Zealand's population grew 17% between 1996 and 2013. Otago University freshwater scientist Mark Schallenberg says the next big focus for preventing water pollution needs to be on what the country's urban spaces are contributing to the problem. 
He says it can be quite significant. You do get a lot of oils and a lot of PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, so combustion products from roads and residues from tires. You do also get E. coli from doggy doo and stuff like that. So it's a big mix that comes off of the urban areas. Streams in urban areas have flashy flows, elevated concentrations of nutrients, highly modified channels, and reduced biodiversity. They also suffer from increased bank erosion, and the water carries a high amount of sediment downstream. Dr. Schallenberg says it's better to be ahead of the game and not reacting to a pollution problem, because it's far more expensive to fix a problem than prevent it. During the development phase, when you have a lot of development going on, like in Wanaka and Queenstown, there's a lot of land disturbance that occurs, and so in the development phase, there needs to be special consideration given to how that activity could affect the water, the, str- the drains draining off that land, the streams that the, those drains drain into, and the lake as well. So during the development phase, a lot of potential runoff of sediment and nutrients into the systems, and then once you develop, there's the issues of the pollutants that come off the roofs and the roads. Dr. Schallenberg says the country is just beginning to realise the full impact of rapid development in urban spaces. The environment has a certain ability to absorb abuse from people, and what we're seeing now is this incredibly rapid population growth, urban development in certain parts of the country, and this is really highlighting the issue because there's more and more people coming, and the infrastructure is developing so quickly. So the stormwater networks are getting so much bigger so quickly, and they're still discharging into the same environments that they always have been, and so the impacts now are, are much greater, and so that's why I think people. People are starting to shift their attention to it, and so we see that in the areas like in the Queenstown Lakes area, where we have you know Queenstown and Wanaka growing at really high growth rates, and we have extremely sensitive, almost pristine lakes there receiving the stormwater. And we see it in places like Auckland, where the growth rate is really high. At a national level, one quarter of wastewater infrastructure is more than 50 years old, with between 10 and 20 percent of the network. Requiring significant renewal or replacement, the replacement value of the entire national network for wastewater and stormwater is more than 36 billion dollars. A microcosm of this issue is Piha, about 40 kilometres from central Auckland. The Piha Lagoon was a once popular swimming spot, but not anymore. Piha is home to about 900 residents and swells with visitors at the weekend, especially in the hotter months. With no public sewage system in town, private homes rely on septic tanks to filter their waste. But the council has estimated between 10 and 25 percent of septic tanks in the town might not be working properly. This means human waste trickles down the hillside and ends up in the lagoon. Bobby Carroll has lived in Piha for 17 years and runs the Black Sands Lodge. She says money needs to be spent on sorting out the infrastructure. I'm very concerned about the pollution in the lagoon. It comes and it goes very quickly, and we're careful where in the lagoon we swim. We don't go underwater. We wouldn't put our ears or eyes or mouth underwater, but、um, just splash around and that, and, and, and no problems. Weekly testing of Piha Lagoon between November and March found most weeks E. coli levels in the water were more than 500 parts per 100 millilitres, 
Some weeks it reached as high as 2,800 parts per 100 millilitres. It's a similar story for a smaller lagoon on Pihar's northern beach, as well as lagoons in the neighbouring west coast beaches of Caddy Caddy and Bethel's Beach. Tests by Auckland Council of all these lagoons show they're contaminated by bird, dog and cow faeces. But the biggest culprit is human waste. Ms Carroll says it's time for the problem to be dealt with by Auckland Council. The changing rain in Pihar is a huge problem. Well, it's a problem everywhere. We don't have normal rain anymore. We have torrential monsoonal rain, and that's causing a lot of stormwater problems. The stormwater runs over the properties, and a lot of the old septic tanks are not sealed. So they're becoming full with stormwater. The water table is rising. So is the outlet from the septic tank still above the water level? These are all very real and quickening problems that we're having to deal with. That was 12-year-old Tumaya Hamahona talking about the Whanganui River. He says that the river is sacred to his people and that it's very cool. For the first time, the Ministry for the Environment has also tried to paint a national picture on the cultural health of rivers and lakes. A cultural health index of freshwater sites has been developed, which measures the factors that are of cultural importance to Māori. Komatua Trevor Ransfield is from the Upukurehe Iwi in the Bay of Plenty. His tribe belongs to the Kutarere Marae, which is nestled beside a stream at the top of the Ohiwa Harbour near Whakatane. Water is the most precious tonga we have. If we're going to lose that, and it's starting to happen in New Zealand and that, and you've seen it on the news, and that we're going to be in great trouble if we don't get on top of this now. We are going to be in great trouble. This is the most precious tonga we can ever have. Tangata Whenua and Hapu groups across the country have determined the health of tens of freshwater sites between 2005 and 2016. One of the measurements is the Mahinga Kai status, or customary food gathering. Of the 39 sites assessed, 28 had a poor or very poor Mahinga Kai status. Seven were moderate and the remainder were good. The Opukurehe iwi has relied on the Waiotahe pipi beds to feed its whānau for over a 100 years. But what was once a land covered in rich native bush and an estuary bursting with kai moana is now a patchwork of dairy farms and waterways, lined with a layer of sediment washed down from forestry and farming. The Bay of Plenty District Health Board has warned people not to eat the shellfish from the estuary because of high levels of E. coli. Oh, I think a lot of our people are devastated when they heard about that. Uh, they were jumping up and down, uh, uh, jumping up and down because of uh, a lot of them, like me, are talking about years back where they could eat these, these, these shellfish. The information collected by Iwi will be incorporated into future reports to help build a better picture on the state of fresh water. The absence of data has been a problem in trying to illustrate water quality and health. Secretary for the Environment, Vicky Robertson, warns that we don't have time to be complacent.
you know, I've been around <laughs> data for a long time and, and you can get caught in trying to get perfect data and understand the problem. And I think, you know, uh, we have had a number of reports on freshwater. We've had probably a decade of some action on freshwater. And I would just say, look, we can debate the science for a long time, but we still need to keep taking action. The next report focusing on freshwater from the Ministry for the Environment will be released in 2020. Ms Robertson hopes some of those data gaps will have been filled by then, so the country will be able to measure how far water quality has come or declined in very recent years. I'm Kate Gudsell and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at InsightRNZ. Kate Gudsell wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Teresa Cowie with technical production by William Saunders. Why not podcast other Insight programmes? Head to iTunes or your Android provider and subscribe, rate and give us a review. Or you can visit the Insight webpage at radionz.co.nz. I'm Philippa Tolley. Great to have you with us and thanks for listening. <laughs>